This is a Federal News Network podcast. Airline safety has increased nearly 100% in the last couple of decades, but the challenge is not over. There's still a big gap in average safety among nations. Bacterial and viral disease increasingly fly first class around the world, and new modes of navigation make the whole system more vulnerable to cyber attacks. That's the gist of new research by the MITRE Corporation. Here with more, former Transportation Secretary Rodney Slater. Mr. Slater, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. Good to be on as well. And MITRE's Aviation Chief, Greg Leone. Mr. Leone, good to have you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Tom. Look forward to the discussion. And I want to start with the most current thing people are thinking about, and that is the pandemic, which, like so many things, insects, for that matter, that invade force, all travel. I like to say the 747 was the greatest transportation system for invasive species ever invented. But the pandemic, how do airlines, how does the system adjust for this now that we're, again, inequality among nations and so forth? Well, Tom, uh, I think you're right to lift up the uh, pandemic as really being a challenge that's faced not only here in the U.S., but across the globe. Frankly, it speaks to the need for cooperation and collaboration. It speaks to the need for the U.S. to remain a leader, uh, not only in dealing with the pandemic as relates to its own citizens, but working in partnership with other nations around the world to address this very significant issue. Clearly, in the early days of the pandemic, some actions were taken to stop the flow of the movement of people. And that's frankly because our carriers and with a seamless transportation system, you can actually move people efficiently, effectively, uh, frankly, across the globe in a matter of hours. And so being sensitive to that is the first step in responding to the challenge. The other point I think to be made is that the industry has been very effective as relates to the distribution, if you will, of vaccines and also in keeping the economy of the globe going, not only the international you know, marketplace that can sometimes be viewed as sort of a static, complicated, <laughs> unknown for most. For those who are in the business of transportation, we know that it's about getting something from a point of origin to a point of destination in the most timely, efficient fashion possible. And that's what keeps our economy going. The transportation industry, aviation in particular, is really the industry that helps other businesses do businesses. And we've seen that manifested in this period of the pandemic as well. I think the key thing, and I'll close with this, is to learn as many lessons as we can to apply them not only in the U.S., but to do so in partnership with our colleagues around the world. And you have to, I think, give the aviation industry kudos, frankly, for diving into this challenge, basically recognizing that the challenge in the way becomes the way. You have to deal with that challenge. And they have made significant investments in the air circulation systems of the planes, They have invested significantly in the cleaning and cleanliness of the planes, the distancing for a long time. There was this middle seat vacancy policy on some carriers, especially Delta, but others as well. And so all of those things, including requiring masking, have been uh, very, very important as we have tried to deal with this issue head on. We've now gotten a little breathing room, and so it's time to start thinking long term. And hopefully we'll be able to get a bit uh, into that discussion as we go forward. Uh, But this is also the business of MITRE. And I want to uh, commend 
Greg Leon and his leadership in MITRE when it comes to our transportation portfolio, and especially on the aviation side, but across transportation. Uh, and I'm so pleased that he and his team were able to work with others to pull together this wonderful piece that you have referenced, and I hope we'll get into a bit more as the conversation continues. Yeah, Greg, I wanted to ask you, is it time to move this idea of where people can go and how carriers do this out of, say, I don't know who's deciding now, the White House or Dr. Fauci, say, with respect to travel to and from India as an example, a current problem? Sure. And should this move into the apparatus that has always controlled international aviation, that is, international agreements on safety standards and so on, which frankly have been led mostly by the United States as the most advanced aviation nation. Absolutely. I would I would say the key theme for us, for the key message when it comes to safety and the next level of safety is around you know, acting lo- locally to actually influence globally. And that's exactly what you just said. We have been doing this for many years to lead the world in safety standards, and this is just another area. We've always called out the aviation industry as one of the safest modes of transportation, and one of the reasons we call it out is it's this globally harmonized, I'll just call it system and mechanism, that makes it a success. And, you know, wherever you go, whatever pilots or whatever company, it's a common set of standards. And I think now that we talk about pandemic and we talk about personal health, those safety standards and those, what do you want to call it, vaccine records and other kinds of things are going to have to be standardized so that policymakers around the world, both public and private, can actually make decisions that are best for their state, for their nation, and for the globe, basically. And so part of our push is to really help to standardize those things so that around the world you can implement policies that's needed specific to your locale. We're speaking with Greg Leone. He's director of the Center for Advanced Aviation System Development at the MITRE Corporation, and with Rodney Slater, former transportation secretary, now a partner at the law firm Squire Patent Boggs. And let's talk about the cyber threat that is increasingly coming into aviation, partly because of how much data is being downloaded and generated by aircraft themselves, but also the switch to the GPS navigation which can be spoofed and so forth. What are some good international responses there, and what should our transportation department here in the U.S. be doing? Tom, I was just going to say quickly, and then I'll turn to Greg. I think one of the most significant things to occur during the Clinton administration was the decision through executive order, now working with the Department of Defense, Department of Transportation, Commerce, the State Department, really across the administration, to make GPS more available for civilian use. And it has actually enabled us to harness this very sophisticated piece of technology, if you will, and to add it to the concrete asphalt and steel of transportation as we think about it, so as to bring about greater efficiency and clarity and vision when it comes to the application of transportation technology as we look to the future a greater degree of automation, those sorts of things, communications between and among pieces of equipment, if you will, and clearly between and among human beings. But I just wanted to mention that because a lot of times you think the passage of major pieces of legislation, the most important thing, well, all of that's important because it gives you the policy and it gives you the resources, but then also taking innovative steps like making GPS available for civilian use and sometimes doing that 
through executive order, the power of the executive, very important as well. And I applaud President Clinton and also Vice President Gore in their decision to move on this front. And now we see the significance of that technology. And we also have started to deal with some of the vulnerabilities. And again, your question goes to that. And I'd like to just turn to Greg at this point. Great. Yeah. And I I would actually expand the problem because the the paper that we put out, it actually is talking more about what's coming in the future. And when you talk about drones and this really interconnected world, it's based on new communication standards. So think about space-based comm in the future that isn't there yet today and how to secure that and to make sure that the communications globally you know, are secured. So that's a, that's kind of a key point of ours. There's there's ways to do that through, number one, collaborating globally with industry players that provide these services and make sure that we understand the threats and how we're currently being attacked and make sure that we're sharing that with each other. And those kinds of apparatus and collaborations already exist today, and we just want to amplify those. And we want people to think about the infrastructure of the future, not just what we have today. And that's part of what the paper calls out. But with respect to GPS, though, you almost need a backup type of system. And there are actually, what, two or three GPSs operating. China has one. I believe Russia has one. So should planes, for example, be able to, if someone spoofs the U.S.-based system, well, we'll use China's because they typically wouldn't spoof their own. Sure. And most systems are interoperable like that. And there's also fallback capabilities that if there is no GPS, most commercial fleet can fly with infrastructure that's on the ground, like DME to DME. So they have these services already today that support backup for that kind of navigation capability. Tom, one other point that you make is, you know, when you mentioned uh, China and Russia, you know, you're also talking about countries with whom we can sometimes have conflicts and tensions. But when it comes to this issue of safety, you will find that these countries find opportunities to work together and to collaborate a lot more than uh, is usually the case. And I think we're going to see that on issues involving climate and other major global concerns as well. But I just thought I'd mention that specifically because you singled out China and Russia. And on a daily basis, we see where we're entangled with both pushing back on certain things and trying to uh, engage on others. And Aeroflot is scary enough as it is, which gets to the issue of the international differences among groups of nations. You've kind of classified them as most safe, kind of safe, and not so safe. We're still talking about low probabilities of death, but nevertheless, there are statistical differences. And this is, as your report points out, as more and more people are flying on those less safe carriers, the issue becomes more important. So how can the transportation department in the United States and international partners that are ahead in safety help bring along those that are not so far along? Well, clearly we have to have continued leadership from the FAA. And there's an organization that we haven't mentioned in the discussion just yet, but both Greg and I, we mentioned it in the report, and that's an organization called ICAO. This uh, entity is about to celebrate its 75th anniversary. It really grows out of effort on the part of the U.S. and the U.K. in the mid-40s, really during the height of the war, where aviation was a much more utilized means of, frankly, warfare. But coming out of World War II, there was the recognition that its commercial use would be significant going forward. So you really had Churchill and Roosevelt 
coming together with their teams, inviting some 50 or so additional countries to this Chicago convention. That's what they call it, the Great Chicago Convention. And it was out of that effort that you started to get this first sort of iteration of a global protocol, if you will, which gave birth to this organization, ICAO. And while sometimes ICAO can be a little lumbering and methodical, it still does a very good job. And we have to build on its strengths, minimize its weaknesses. And I think the FAA has a very good working relationship with ICAO and all of its um, country members. And we're going to see that play out, I think, in the coming years with this administration, by the way. And we should mention a Biden administration that is engaging, that seeks to reestablish ties with our allies, as we've noted a little earlier, mix it up with our adversaries, try to find cooperation where possible on big things that we have to do globally, uh, but that been being uh, competitive on those things where we have to be you know, competitive. And I think uh, ICAO really will be an entity that will get a lot more attention and a lot more support from the U.S. as we seek to deal with this uh, issue of the layers of safety when it comes to aviation. One last thing quickly. During my tenure, one thing that we really promoted was what we called open skies, a liberalized aviation agreement among countries and between countries, usually country to country. But we did have some multi- country agreements starting right at the end. And we did a lot of work on the Africa continent. And I mention that because now we see growing aviation activity really across the continent of Africa, but around the globe. And some of our most recent challenges we found to be in these new emerging countries as they move uh, on the aviation front. And it's incumbent upon countries like the US and others that have more mature systems to be in partnership with these uh, countries. And I think we're going to see more of that as we go forward as well. And Greg, final comment? I would say one of the keys, and, and we call this out in the paper, it, one of the keys to enable all of this stuff is this notion of really enhanced data sharing from all parts mm -hmm. and a partnership, not just with the country regulators or the air traffic control operators, but with industry, with yeah. the airlines, the drone operators, the OEMs, the people who build this thing. This is going to be a partnership that has to be re-enabled. It works very well today in the United States, but we need to move that partnership globally. We need to share sensitive data. We should not never be, and we don't compete on safety in the United States with airlines. We should never do that, and, uh, and we don't. But we need to kind of grow this apparatus globally so that we can monitor and mitigate risks wherever they happen in the globe. And, and I think that's a key part that we're looking to move forward on. Ultimately, airline safety is a function of institutional strength, pretty much, for nations, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. It's a requirement for your economy to really grow, I believe. Yes. No, I agree. You know, uh, Tom, just a quick thought there. I remember when um, the president-elect of Nigeria, President Obasanjo, had just been elected, had a meeting before his swearing-in with President Clinton, and one of the top issues on his agenda was to seek the removal of cautions to American travelers at the time when it came to travel to Nigeria. He viewed that as an affront to the dignity and integrity of his country. And in this very substantive, though clear, direct exchange, uh, the point was made that it was very important for him 
to implement safety protocols throughout Nigeria. He made a commitment to do that. And basically, the U.S., in partnership with him, along with um, important businesses like the airlines and Boeing in particular, by the way, really got that work done. And now you have U.S. carriers flying directly to a number of countries across Africa, Nigeria uh, in particular. But it took political leadership to stand up a safety protocol in Nigeria to have it complementary of the safety systems of, you know, developed uh, aviation powers, the U.S., uh, countries across Europe and the like, some throughout Asia. And President Obasanjo met that challenge. And now Nigeria continues to serve in an admirable fashion in that regard, but clearly recognizing the need for improvement, as is always the case with safety. You may be as good as you can be today, but tomorrow you have to be better. Rodney Slater is former Transportation Secretary, now a partner at the law firm Squire Patton Boggs. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And Greg Leone is director of the Center for Advanced Aviation Systems Development at the MITRE Corporation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. We'll post this interview along with a link to their report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Fly the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, 
What have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments. And I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic. 
uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.